Hey, I'm Cameron, and thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad that you are here and would love to get connect with you and your family. One easy way you can do that is to text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some of our upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. got your Bible, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 6. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We are kind of picking up in the middle of Jesus' sermon. We started this series actually two years ago. Uh, We started with the Beatitudes, and then we went through the beginning of uh, Jesus' teaching. I carried up after the Beatitudes into that latter part of Matthew 5 last fall. And this fall, we're walking through chapter 6. And so we're going to be in the middle of Jesus' teachings here of the Sermon on the Mount, a very famous sermon that Jesus preached. Uh, in in Israel, and he, he it's a, it, I've been to the place that they believe that Jesus spoke these words. It's kind of like a natural amphitheater right there, and you can see how Jesus could articulate. There, I believe, was about five thousand or more people there uh, that that they could hear Jesus's words being preached here. This is one of his longest sermons recorded, and so we are in Matthew six. And we're going to be in verses five through 7, I believe it is, or beginning in verse 7, 7 and 8. Yep, verse 7 and 8. I had to check my notes. Uh, and, and where we're at in this, in this sermon here is where Jesus is walking us through. I kind of want to just refresh your memory if you're new here or if this is your first time, kind of catch you up a little bit. Uh, we're, we're covering Jesus' main theme, which is righteousness, right? Mm, what is right? What does it mean to live out a righteous life? And we have a lot of opinions about what it means to live out a righteous life. And Jesus is really laying out the fundamental difference between what man says is righteous versus what God sees as righteous. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus walks through things that man would clearly say are not righteous actions. Murder, adultery, revenge in a sense. Jesus even deals with these things. And we would go, hey, that's really not right behavior. You shouldn't murder. I don't think anybody would question that. But Jesus takes it up a step more and says, hey, really, God views the condition of your heart. And he says, do you hate a person? And if you've hated a person, Jesus' words are recorded, it's the same as murdering a person. Wow, that's a whole nother level of standard of righteousness that Jesus is teaching. And as we walk into the the book of, uh, or the sixth chapter, obviously chapters and verses are inserted by man so we can kind of navigate. Jesus wouldn't have stopped and paused because it's chapter six. He would have carried right through his message. As we walk into chapter six, Jesus shifts from what man would say this is clearly wrong to what man would identify as clearly good things. Giving to the needy, praying, forgiveness, 
fasting. Like these are things that man would go, oh, that's clearly righteous activity. And, and, and what Jesus is doing is it's amazing here. He's taking what man would define as righteous, giving to the needy in a way that everybody sees. The hero syndrome, I call it. And he says, no, that's not the right way. That's not how God views your activity in a righteous way. And last week we walked through prayer, and I call this the ego syndrome. So Jesus is dealing with the hero syndrome, and he's dealing with the ego syndrome, right? Where, where the man who comes and prays, and we looked at the, the example laid out in Luke with the Pharisee who, who comes before the Lord in contrast to the tax collector and says, man, Lord God, aren't you glad I'm on your side? I'm nothing like that guy. This is not righteous activity, even in our actions of prayer, which nobody would complain or say, hey, man, you really shouldn't pray. No one would really ever say that. Jesus is, is walking through, hey, what we think is right and the way we do what is right, we still have to examine the condition of our heart, the motive of our heart, and how we approach God. And Jesus is going to walk us through, and today we're going to look at really, uh, we looked at kind of the tone, our ego, our pride versus humility and approaching the Lord. Today we're going to look at a passage that Jesus is going to walk us through in verses 7 and 8. And so let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll look at application. Verse 7, Matthew 6, verse 7, and Jesus is speaking again about prayer and how we are to do it rightly versus how it is not to be done. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Some of your versions may say vain repetitions. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. If you like to highlight in your Bible, I would highlight that phrase or that word, that singular word, that is said, heard. They think they will be heard with their many words. Verse 8, Jesus says, do not, do not be like them. And then he goes on and he gives us this amazing promise, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. So let's pray and look at how we can dissect this passage and apply it to our life today. Heavenly Father, I just am so grateful to be here this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would move in our hearts, Lord. Uh, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, speak to us. It, it, remove me, remove my person. I just pray that through your word, Lord, you would speak in not just other people's hearts, but you would even speak into my own heart. Lord, convict me where I need to be convicted. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look at this, I've really divided this simple verses, there's two simple verses here, into two parts. The first part is this. When we approach the Lord, and remember what prayer is. We talked about this last week. Prayer is, is not, it is a conversation. We're talking to God, but it is also an aspect of our devotion to God. It is an aspect of our adoration of God. It is a, it is a worship in a sense, when we pray, we are worshiping God. We are coming to him uh, knowing that he is all things. He, and as this passage says, he knows all things. 
So as simple as a conversation, like me and my wife might have a simple conversation, there is an element, yes, that is true, but there is also an element that we go and say, hey, this is also where I get to show my devotion to God, my worship to God. It's time that God says, hey, I'm available. We looked at that last week. He's not too busy. He has time for us, right? And so when we worship God and we come and we share our adoration, our devotion, and our worship, prayer what God is, what Jesus is walking us through here is, is it's not a spectacle. It's not a spectacle. You look at that phrase as it said, he says, Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. I'm going to focus on this aspect of empty phrases. The spectacle, if you will, that gets laid out in our prayers. And how this applies to us today, and, and as I was preparing for this, one of the passages that, that I really think really ties this in and helps us really see what Jesus is talking about is recorded for us in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, there is a man named Elijah. Elijah is a man who is a prophet, and the king that ruled the land at that time, his name is Ahab, and he's a wicked, wicked king. He sought to kill Elijah. And there is this amazing epic battle that takes place on a, on a mountain called Mount Carmel. I've had the privilege of standing on this mountain. It's an amazing sight. You have a great view. You can see the terrain, the plains that surround it. And so, so when you come to this place, this mountain, you have this epic battle that's been recorded in 1 Kings. And it kind of helps us understand a little bit of the spectacle that Jesus is warning us in Matthew chapter 6 here, he says, don't pray as the Gentiles do. So he's shifting a little bit from the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the mask wearers, and he's going to what I would define as the unbelievers, the ones who pray. Maybe you've never thought about this. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus. You've never believed in, in the person of God, but you don't even realize that you actually have a God that you pray to. I was an atheist for a period of my life. My God was myself. And though I never prayed in the sense of a conversation with myself, trust me when I said I worshipped and devoted and adored myself as God. That's horrible. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And so when we think about this aspect of prayer and the spectacle and the empty phrases, when we go to 1 Kings and we look at what takes place, I want to sh share this story to you to help you understand that even those who do not claim Christ, there is something or someone that they worship. And we see the consequences of who they are actually praying to, who they are actually heaping up empty phrases to. So let's look at it in 1 Kings, if you will go with me, beginning in verse 20, kind of lay the, the story out for you. We'll read these passages. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If, in fact, the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, this is the opposing God, the other God, if you will, the idolatry that the Israeli people were following, God's people were following in that sense, they were both kind of tiptoeing between, do I pray to God or do I pray to Baal? 
Who, who am I? Maybe they prayed to God on Sunday and the rest of the week they were with Baal. We don't have that problem in church at all, I'm sure. But here we see this conflict and Elijah as a wise prophet is like, listen, listen, listen. Let's stop tiptoeing around this. Let's stop playing games. We can even see the aspects of the hypocrite. Let's take the masks off. Let's be real. Let's be authentic. Let's be genuine for a little bit of time here. And he goes in and he says, if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I alone, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. He says, let's, let's, let's take two bulls and let it be given to each of us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it up in pieces and lay it on an altar or on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood or an altar and I will put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, you pray to your God. You pray to your God and see if he shows up. This is literally what he said. Let's stop pretending. Let's take the masks off. And, and listen, you've got your idols. You've got your God. If Baal is truly a God, if this, this being, this pretend God is really truly a God, you pray to him and let's see him show up. And if he's there, as he continues in this passage, verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people looked at and listened to what Elijah was saying, and they said, man, this is sound reasoning. This is a good test. We can finally figure out which God's a real God. I'm surprised they were so confused. But they were. And then he says, and all the people answered and said, this is, this is good reasoning, Elijah. It is well spoken of you. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself a bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. You see the test that's being laid out here. Elijah is like, listen, man, we got to stop pretending, Israel. God's people, stop pretending. Stop playing both sides of the fence. And he tells the people of Israel, hey, listen, we're going to test this. You say Baal is a God, he's good, he's powerful, he's all these things. Let's put it to the test. And we start to see what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 as we see the conduct of these 450 prophets as they begin to pray empty phrases to their God. I want to show you this. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. Look at this. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. That phrase right there, that word called upon the name, that's them praying. They're praying empty phrases. Empty phrases to their God. And look at what they did. They did it from morning until noon. This is their prayer saying, oh Baal, answer me. Baal, answer me. Baal, respond to my prayer. Baal, Baal, I'm calling out to you. Please hear me. And as you read this story, it's sad. You see the very next phrase, but there was no voice and no one 
answered. This ties directly into Jesus' aspect of what he's teaching about who the Gentiles prayed to. Their idols. Their empty phrases. Why were they empty? Because there was no one there to respond back. There was no voice that would call back to them and respond and communicate. It'd be no different than me having a conversation with this, this table and saying, man, you're a really nice table. I love that I get to be with you every week. Sunday mornings, this is awesome. I'm having an empty conversation. This thing doesn't respond to me. It doesn't communicate back to me. There's no voice. There's no one to communicate with here. It's empty. And here, as you look at the example of these prophets as they earnestly pray and heap up empty words, listen to this. And they limp around their altar that they had made from morning until noon. That's a long time. Several hours, probably five, five to six hours, they repeated the same request. Lord, Baal, answer us. Can you imagine 450 men? Maybe they, they walked around their altar, and I imagine this altar was a huge spectacle. I mean, imagine how big of an altar you have to have to have 450 people to walk around it. They limped around it, it says. I'm sure just this is the way the devil works. He creates these spectacles, right? These things that are so enormous in our life. We think they're massive. They're huge. I imagine this altar of Baal was ornate. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Probably had wonderful flowers laid over it. May have even been coated with gold at some point. I mean, this is their God, 450 men building an altar. It's really appealing to the eye. I'm sure all the Israelis that were looking at this were like, wow, this is an amazing altar. This is beautiful. Wow. This God's got to be real. Look at how much money they put into this. Look at how much time they put into this. Look at how much time they're spending hours from morning until noon praying to this God. He's got to be showing up, right? I love Elijah. I tend to have a sense of sarcasm. I got to be careful with it because not everybody appreciates sarcasm. If you appreciate sarcasm, you understand this. Sometimes you can hurt people. But Elijah, I, I, I really go to this when I try to validate my own sarcasm. It's probably a little different scenario. But Elijah has a sense of sarcasm here. As he continues at noon, verse 27, Elijah begins to mock them using sarcasm. And he says to them, hey, maybe you should cry louder. Maybe you should speak louder. You know, he is a God. He's far away. Maybe you should speak louder so he can hear you. Maybe he's busy being entertained or being amused by something. And so you have to get his attention. Maybe speak louder. Then he'll hear you. Or, or even he goes into, maybe he's using the bathroom. It says it right there in Scripture. He's, maybe he's... He's busy right now, and so you, you need to give him some time. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Give him a break. Maybe he's on a trip somewhere, and you've missed him. Maybe he, he's too busy for you. He's on a, maybe a very important journey. He's busy. He's not around. Or maybe he's just asleep, and so you need to speak louder and wake him up. This is what Elijah is walking these, these prophets. He's kind of and mocking them. And the, 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 the prophets, their response is this. 
Okay, we'll speak louder. But not only that, we'll go into some very serious customs they had regarding their God. Not only will they speak louder, they cried aloud, verse 28. They begin to cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances. So they cut themselves and pierce themselves. You want to talk about devotion, that seems like some serious devotion these people are praying. I don't know any Christian that's willing to cut themselves so God gets their attention. In fact, I would never recommend that. <laughs> but here, they are, they are led. This isn't like these are non-religious people. These people are very religious in their ideology. They're willing to cut themselves, pierce themselves. Lord, anything to get your attention, just show up for me, please, just once. That's what their plea is. Tie this back to Matthew 7 or Matthew 6. Empty phrases. Why was it empty? As we look at this passage and continue on, after they cut themselves, after they pierced themselves, blood is gushing out upon them. This was not just like a little prick. This was a serious bodily wound. Blood is, I'm sure, all around from these 450 prophets who are so convinced that this is the the God that's going to give them their answer. This continues, verse 29, and as midday passes, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which would have been evening time. So they've spent all day keeping up empty phrases. This is the saddest part when you read verse 29. But there was no voice. There was no one who answered. No one paid attention. That's sad. It's heartbreaking. And you might sit here and go, man, those guys are morons. I don't know why they fell for that, Pastor John. Those guys are clearly not with the program. The sad thing is, is we have Christians today that do the exact same thing. The God might not be called Baal. We have different gods. You see that we kind of wave between. Maybe it's the God of money. Maybe it's the God of a drug that you've picked. Maybe it's a God of sex that you seek after. And you, you waif between these two opinions, between who God is, who the real God is, versus the other God that you have the rest of the week. And you're like the Israelites, and you go back and forth between these two gods. It could be drugs, it could be alcohol, some form of addiction. Man, you, you see some correlations with these 450 prophets. And they're devoted to these gods, these false idols. They heap up empty phrases. They're willing to cut themselves, bleed for their God. We see this in our world too. We see people willing to sacrifice their families, sacrifice themselves for their God. They walk between two. On Sunday, they pray to, pray to God, and then the rest of the week, they are stuck in their idolatry. They're willing to sacrifice everything they have for the God that they worship. And so when we look at this this phrase, and and when we compare this word empty phrases, I, I think it's very important to recognize that the gods that we have in our own lives that we are clueless about, we don't call them gods, 
We don't say they're a God in our life, but we worship them, we're devoted to them, and we adore them. Consider what it means to pray. The addictions we allow in our lives. We allow them to exist there. We don't consider the consequences. We'll bleed for them. We'll, We'll sacrifice everything we have for them. We say we have to have them. I want, you, I want to correlate this in, a, in another way with you so maybe you see the connection. Tying it back to that phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6, the empty phrases. We offer our empty phrases to the God of money and we ask it to make us happy or to give us peace or security. We offer up our empty phrases in our careers, maybe, asking it to bring us the security and the hope that we need. We offer up our empty phrases to substances and addictions, praying that it may ease our pain or make us not hurt anymore. We offer up our empty phrases to God, the God of sex, by praying that it will make us fulfilled and satisfied. This exists in the church today too. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be overbearing. But the reality is, is we have these issues that exist in our churches. In God's people, this is real. And as Elijah says, man, we got to come to a conclusion in our own hearts, in our own minds. Hey, this, this God of Jesus, the God that Jesus points us to, the Father, he's either real or he's not, or these other things are real, and they let them, let them answer you. And oftentimes, and I've lived this in my own life, so I have, I'm not speaking from ignorance, if you will, when we pursue these other gods, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a career and money, when we pursue them, we find ourselves in the same place the 450 prophets do. We, we find ourselves pleading and saying, just answer me once. Be the thing that I need you to be. And we find ourselves, listen, if you like to party, and trust me, in my younger years, I like to party. But after the party, you wake up, and you still have no answer. There's still no voice there. You're left there alone with no one to talk to, to no one that actually has an answer to your plea. As we continue in this passage, it's amazing. In 1 Kings, you, you look at, and I'm just going to summarize what Elijah does. After the prophets of Baal fail, their gods don't answer, there's no response. Elijah gets up and he builds his altar. He's by himself, so I imagine it, it's nothing, nothing ornate. It's just Elijah building a small altar. It defines it. He uses 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He puts his cattle on there. And then he does something that's absolutely mind-blowing. He tells them to go grab some water for jars of water. We're not talking about like little pitchers. We're talking like big jars of water. And he says, hey, pour this on the altar. Now, can you imagine the the 450 prophets after they've spent all day calling out, heaping up empty phrases with no response? It was hard enough to light a fire when there was no water. 
It was a, a period of drought, man. If somebody could have just thrown a little match, it probably would have gone up in smokes real quick. Here, Elijah goes and pours water on it. And then they come back, they pour the water on it, and he says, do it again. Okay, one, once was enough, Elijah. Man, now you're really rubbing it in. They pour the, the, the eight massive jars of water on this altar, which I'm sure wasn't that, that big to begin with. They, they're like, okay, are you good? He's like, no, do it again. Twelve jars of water. In fact, it says the ground was so saturated that there was a, a trench around it that it was full and there was nothing that was dry around the altar. And then you get to see Elijah pray. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, this is in the evening time, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. It took me 20 seconds to read that. It took, it took Elijah 20 seconds to pray that prayer, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. But this is what's recorded for us. And look at what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trenches. Do you see the difference? I hope you can see this. Here are the prophets who prayed for hours and hours, heaping up empty phrases over and over again. They were going to their idols and saying, hey, answer me, answer me, answer me. And at the end of the day, they were left bleeding all over the ground, and no one was there to answer. In contrast to Elijah, who prayed a prayer, who probably didn't last more than 20 or 30 seconds. I don't know the exact time, but I'm just saying if that's all he prayed and that was the only thing that was recorded in his prayers, it took no more than 20 and 30 seconds and boom, against all odds, what people would consider the most impossible thing, the Lord shows up and answers him. This is the difference when we talk about when we are approaching God, when we are coming into his presence, when we are praying to him, who we are praying to. We're praying to a God that has a voice, a God that hears. They're not empty. He, we're not talking to somebody that doesn't respond back. I love, I love this, verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says, and he's warning us when he says this, when you pray, when you choose who you worship or what you worship, when you choose what you adore, when you choose what you are uh, devoted to, when you pray, do not, do not pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles. 
Do, and do not pray to something that doesn't have a voice. Do not pray to something that's not going to answer you in your time of need. As we continue in this passage, we see Jesus saying very clearly at the end of it, he says, you pray, do not pray, do not be like them, because our Father knows what you need before you ask of him. Man, that's such an encouraging promise. And I know the earlier part of this, this connection of recognizing in our own lives, in our own hearts, what we are actually worshiping is really critical for every disciple and believer, and I would even argue non-believer, to determine in their heart, hey, who is your God actually? Who do you actually pray to? Who are you actually devoted to? What are you actually devoted to? Is it a person? Is his name Jesus Christ? If it's not him, you're going to find yourself heaping up empty phrases where no one gives you a response, where there is no voice, and there's no one to reply to your petitions, to your requests. As I look at this promise, I think of Psalms 139. Psalms 139 is a beautiful passage. I'm going to read just a few verses from there, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. This is tying back into what Jesus is saying. Our Father knows what we need before we even ask of it. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Look at this. Even before a word is on my tongue, even before I pray for it, even before I speak it out of my mouth in the form of a prayer, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. This element of knowing and understanding that the God we serve knows everything about us. I want you to tie this back into what the prophets struggled with and maybe the, the link to our current church age. God knows the struggles you have in your life. He knows the battles you're facing. Maybe it is an addiction, and those are real battles that people have to struggle and fight with every single day. But guess who knows that you're facing that battle? He knows it. Before you even go to him and talk to him, he knows you're struggling with it. Maybe you struggle with anxiety because of finances and your, your hope and your peace and your security. Guess who knows that you struggle with that? Guess who knows it? Before you even say it in a, in a word, before you utter it out of mouth, guess who knows that you have those tendencies in your heart, that you have that anxiety? I love that this is what God tells us to, to understand who our Father is, that he understands us, he knows us. As you continue in the Psalms, it says, You hem me in, behind, and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot even attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where am I going to hide from you, God? Where can I go to get away from you? This is what this, this author of the Psalms is saying. Where, where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Considering what prayer is, when we enter into the presence of God, where is it that I can go, that I can get away from your presence, that your prayer, my prayer won't be heard? 
Listen to what he says. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Wow, what a promise. What is that? What is he saying? Hey, listen, I don't care if you're walking through the darkest part of your life. I don't care if your life, you're like, man, it's a wreck. This is, this is a dark part of my, in the darkest part of your life, we have a God that sees. We have a God that hears. We have a God that carries us through. Even in the darkest parts of our life, we see this author recognizing who God is, that he knows what we're going through. He knows the struggles we're carrying. He knows the burdens we have. And he's like, I am there. In contrast to the other idols we may have in our life. In contrast to the 450 prophets who were praying empty phrases to a God that could not respond. To a God that didn't have the power or authority to heal, to protect, and to care for. They were empty phrases. So you continue in this passage. In Psalms 139, it says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Look at this in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Wow! This is how much God knows about each and every one of us. He knows when we were made. He knows when we were formed. He knows what we were going to do as we walked this earth before we actually did it. That's what this passage is telling us. He has all authority, all power, and all knowledge. Why on earth would we not go to him and pray to him? Why would we not worship him? Why would we not come to him and adore him and be devoted to him? He knows everything about us. He knows our insecurities. He knows our doubts. He knows our anxieties. He knows our battles. We're not praying to a God that doesn't have the ability to answer. We're not praying to a God that doesn't understand the struggles that we go through. I'm going to end with a poem. I find this to be absolutely an awesome poem, and if you grew up in a church that sang hymns, this may sound familiar to you, because I think they turned this into a hymn. But I'm going to read it in poetry form. I asked the tech team to put it on the screen as I read it, 
This really is a kind of a culmination of what I believe Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 6 here to understand this promise that he's saying, hey, listen, we have a father that knows, that knows everything we're going through. Even before we ask it, he knows. It's called My Father Knows. It's written by a lady, uh, I think her pen name is SMI Septa Miranda Irish Henry. If you have an old hymn book, you may find some of the things she wrote. She was an author, she wrote lots of poetry, and I believe they turned some of her poetry into hymns. But this is how it goes. I know my heavenly Father knows. He knows the storms that would my way oppose. But he can drive the clouds away and turn the darkness into day. I know my heavenly Father knows the balm I need to soothe my woes. And with his touch of love divine, he heals the wounds, the wounded heart of mine. I know my heavenly Father knows how frail I am to meet my foes. But he, my cause, will forever defend, uphold and keep me to the end. I know my heavenly Father knows the very hour my journey here will close. And may that hour, O faithful guide, that is, of course, our God and Jesus, find me safe, sheltered by thy side. When we speak of who we are praying to, when we are walking through what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 6, that promise he lays down there, that promise that he puts in that passage, I know what you need before you even ask it. Do we actually believe that? Do we actually, do we actually believe that? In conclusion, I'm just going to challenge you to consider and evaluate in your own life who's your God. If you're here and you never have confessed Christ as your Lord, and maybe you have this, this, this turmoil within you, man, I want to serve Jesus, I want to be with Jesus, but I know I've got these other idols in my life i got to deal with. Man, let's be like Elijah. Let's stop playing games. Let's do what Elijah let's, let's Let's stop playing games. Let's see if these other idols actually answer you. If they give you the hope that you need, if they give you the security that you need, let's really evaluate the gods in our life, the idols that we have in our life, and say, hey, these idols, man, are they truly doing what they're supposed to be doing? And if they're not, I would encourage you to get rid of them out of your life. Deal with the condition of the heart, the things that we hold to, that we are devoted to, the things that we hang on to and adore and worship. And if that idol in your life isn't Jesus Christ and the Father, we have the wrong God. We have a God that doesn't answer. It's empty phrases. It's vain. It's, there's no purpose in it. We have a God that hears us. We have a God that sees us. We have a God that hears and answers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, thank you so much for this passage Lord, thank you for what you teach us on the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, thank you for the instructions and prayer and how we are to approach you. 
and how the condition of our heart is so critical in coming into the presence with you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the promises that you share with us, that you know what we need before we even ask of it. Lord, you know the battles we face. You know the idols that are in our life that we are swayed from. You. Lord, I just pray today, Lord, as a people, as a group, Lord, we would confront those idols and put them out of our life and we would come to worship only you. Thank you for being with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.